Okay, it is great to be with you this morning. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. We'll be in verses 22 through 36. As Brett shared, I am one of the elders here at Grace Community Church. And from time to time, they like to give the church a break from hearing good, sound, biblical teaching. And so that is where I come in. So I also want to note that I am the least eldest of the elders. I will not embarrass the oldest, although it rhymes with Jeff James. I'm very thankful to be a part of this church, and my faith has grown tremendously through the teaching of Brett over the past seven years. And I'm very grateful for the spiritual development that he oversees here at Grace. And I'm also thankful, on a serious note, for my team members, my fellow elders, and have enjoyed greatly, with the exception of Chris Kelly, their friendship, <laughs> and believe that most precious gifts of God. <laughs> I'll get with you after Chris. <laughs> talk with you this morning about Jesus walking on the water. And I really love the stories of Jesus. I really enjoy just looking at them because they remind us as we read through them of why we love Jesus so much. And this story is like a lot of his miracles show us who he is and what he and what he is so good at and i really struggled with doing this text to be honest with you at the earlier part of the week i chose this text and then because of my own I thought no this isn't complex enough there's not enough nuance and i need to really do a more difficult text and then about halfway through the week, the Lord says, what are you doing? And so I'm back <laughs> and not Jason, which is a good place to be. And so this is a really good story. And I'm very thankful. It has all the elements of the things that we love about stories, by the way. It's a scary story. I mean, it has darkness, it has dread, it has fear. There's even a ghost, what, who they think is a ghost, but kind of like in Scooby-Doo when they take the mask off at the end and they reveal it's someone else that you already knew. Well, I guess Jesus is the one in the story scaring all of the kids. The mask comes off of him and he's, he's actually Jesus, not a ghost. <laughs> but, but this has so many elements of it that you just have to love, and I'm, I'm really going to enjoy reading this and with you about this, and it again reminds us that Jesus is not just the hero of this story, he is the hero of the story. And so we're going to talk about a few things this morning, and this story again, it has a lot of things to say about our faith in Jesus, about the difficulties that we go through storms in our life, and we're going to talk about that. 
We're also going to talk about the process of discipleship, but some of those things are really just subplots, plot of Jesus. He is the focal point of the story, and so we'll talk about that this morning. I'm going to do it a little bit different than what I've typically done, and maybe typically different than what you've heard in the past. I'm actually going to read the story. We're going to go through and talk about it, and then I'm going to give some takeaways at the very end of what we look at through the story. So it'll be a little bit different. So this morning, let's read it. Matthew chapter 14, and we'll look in verse 2 to begin. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost! They said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning for who Jesus is. We are so thankful that Jesus is the Son of God. And Father, we are thankful for this passage, and we pray this morning that you would help us to see Jesus as He is, not as a figment of our imagination or a fabrication of our own creation, but that we would see Him as the Scripture reveals Him, as the speaks to us this morning. Father, as my brother Brian mentioned earlier, there are so many people in here today that bring their burdens and bring their difficulties and bring so much stuff bare when they come into a collective game like this. And so God, as we come here today, we pray that we would lay down these burdens at the feet of Jesus and that you would be seen as the answer or not a solution, not one among many possible practical methodologies, but may you be seen as the source of all goodness, of all strength, of all faith, of all anything significant in our life that is to be. And so, Father, help us this morning as we go through this to truly see you. Help me, Lord, to communicate and not to confuse the story, but to be clear in what I say. And Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by seeing you for who you are. We thank you 
And we praise you for it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make a few introductory remarks before we get into the main text that pertains to our story this morning. This obviously is in the Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew, of course, is one of the twelve. He's the author of this Gospel. And in this immediate context, of course, the disciples and Jesus have actually just experienced one of Jesus' greatest miracles. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And in fact, the idea of sending the crowd away was not originally Jesus' idea. It was the disciples' idea. They wanted to send the crowd away. But the only problem with that was that they wanted to send the crowd away, a crowd away without having anything to eat. You know, so this is more Jason Grizzard being a disciple, like, get out of here, you know. And so that's not really the heart of Jesus. Jesus is like, no, you need to take care of these people. You need to make sure that they are fed. And they're like, well, that's the problem. It's quite a distance. We really don't have any cash. There's a lot of obstacles to being able to do what you're asking us to do. And as Tim said, there's always a lot of obstacles to doing what God has instructed you to do. But he still, he tells you to do it, and he doesn't just tell you to do it, he enables you to do it. And that's the great thing about this story is that we'll talk about, he never tells us to do something, but also give us the capacity to do it through his strength. So they're coming out of this story, and... Then Jesus, after they have fed, after the miracle takes place, he then does something completely unexpected. He sends the crowd away. And we're given a little bit of insight as we look at the Gospel of John, which is the parallel account of this. And the reason that he sends them away is that they wanted to make him king. And that was not Jesus' timetable. It wasn't part of his scheme. And so he says, okay, we've got to disperse these people real quick, and then also he sends his disciples away. He sends them away to the other side of the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee, which is very notorious for storms cropping up all of the time because of the mountains that are surrounding Galilee. There's always storms coming up. So this was not the first storm. This certainly would not be the last storm that they but he sends them to the other side with a purpose in mind. They are going somewhere, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But he sends them away, but then he goes and he gets by himself. And he gets by himself and he prays. And what is amazing about this is that Jesus is praying for the ones that he has just sent away. He sends the disciples away and then he gets alone with the Father and he prays for them. So I want to mention really quickly again before we get into the main text of the story. There's three things I love about Jesus in this that we can quickly get introduction. The first thing is that Jesus never loses sight of the grand scheme. He never loses sight of the grand scheme. He is always working a plan. He is always working a purpose. And it is very easy when you are in something to lose sight of what is going on above the thing that you're in. Jesus never does that. He is always working the purpose of the Father. He is always working 
the plan, towards a scheme, towards a dynamic. And he never loses sight of that even in the midst of helping people. That's really hard for us to do, isn't it? The plan is people, but people can't dictate the plan. And that's often where we get into trouble. We keep our eyes focused on God, which we should be about other people, but then it gets really messy and murky and we lose sight of the fact that, wait, we're working this for God's glory. Jesus never falls into that trap. He is always working a plan. If this had been me, I would have set up feeding sites everywhere after the feeding of the 5,000. That's not what Jesus wants to do though. He wants to take care of the need and then He disperses them. He never loses sight of that. And then the thing is, He never loses sight of those in need, which we already see. He not only loses, and we, some of us fall way on one end of the spectrum of the other. We usually take more towards meeting immediate needs, which are tangible, physical, material needs, or we gravitate more towards meeting spiritual needs, pastoral teaching, and so forth. Jesus never has to choose between one of the always concerned about both. And so he never loses sight of that all throughout the Gospels. We see it again and again and again. But the third thing that we see real quick is that Jesus never loses sight of those who are closest to him. The ones who are closest to him in this story are the twelve, the disciples. And he is going to use the disciples to do greater works than he did. He is going to use the disciples, as the book of Acts will say, to turn the world upside down. But they are not ready. And so he is always moving them towards the place where they need to be. Moving them so that he can get them where he needs them to be to be able to do the greater works. They are not there. And you will find this throughout all of the stories of the gospel. There's flashes of greatness. And there's flashes of hope. And then they fail. And then they falter. And then you're like, wow, I really relate to this. Because I falter. I fail. But I'm reminded that Jesus is committed he never bails on the plan. He never says, you know what? This isn't working. We're going to have to let you 12 go. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to find the, the next best thing. Never, he stays committed all the way to the end. So I love that about Jesus. So let's get into the story real quick. Look with me in verse number 4. It says... Let, let's back up. He says, after he had dismissed the crowd, in verse 23, it says, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So, the word here that is translated in some Bibles in the it says considerable dif- uh, distance. It is literally in, uh, it really means many st- stadia. You know, a stadium, stadia. Basically, that idea is about 600 feet. That's the distance. And so John's gospel said that they had actually already rode 
25 to 30 stadia, so that's about three to four miles, and the lake is only about four to five miles wide, so in port, that is a considerable distance from land. And so the boat is also buffeted by waves. And the term buffeted means literally tormented. And it is used often in reference to demonic hostility towards people. So it's even possible that the storm that comes up on the lake is actually the result of demonic activity or of Satan himself. We don't know, but we just know that the term that is used is often used in that very context. And so when Jesus, of course, rebukes the storm in another passage of Scripture, that makes a little bit more sense that He is doing that. But we do know things are really bad. (laughs) Things are about as bad as you possibly get. And so Jesus goes to the disciples at the fourth watch of the night. Now, watches don't mean a whole lot to us today, but in that society, the idea of a watch, much like the Greek and the Romans, they would divide the evening into different sentry posts. And so the watch was actually a time frame where they would watch over the city, where they would uh, you know, make sure that everybody was safe. And so this is actually fourth three-hour century post-segment, which is between 3 to 6 a.m., is the darkest part of the night. And some of you have never seen 3 to 6 a.m., but it is the very darkest part of the morning. And so Jesus goes to them at the very darkest part of the morning, and they do recognize Him. They, they are completely formed. In fact, The Bible says that they were terrified. They they cried out in fear. There's difficulty, there's danger, discouragement, despair, darkness, about all kind of words that you can think of that, all within just a few hours. One person in the world who can actually help them with the situation that they are in, they don't recognize. They don't know that this is... Jesus. Have you ever been in so deep in something that when Jesus showed up, you had no idea who He was? That's exactly where the disciples are. They are in so deep to a situation that Jesus comes to them on top of the water and they have no idea that it's Him. In fact, they think it's a ghost coming to kill them. And they are wreaked with terror. And so, Jesus responds immediately and He says to them, He says, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. The phrase take courage can also mean take heart. And Jesus often will use this term to encourage people who are in difficult situations. He actually uses this in chapter 9, verse 2 of Matthew, when he speaks to the paralytic, and he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. He also speaks to the woman with the issue of blood in the same chapter, and he says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. The reason that Jesus is able to say this is because of who he is. He says, It is Here, another way of saying that grammatically is, I am. Sound familiar? 
And so it's a connection again to that idea of the Old Testament God, the, the God who is known as Yahweh. Don't be afraid because He is present and He is not walking under the water. He is not through the water. He is not in the water. on the water. And so He is able to speak with authority and He is able to encourage those who are in the situation that they are in. Then there's Peter. So Peter says, Lord, if it's you. Now, that word if can be problematic in our English. Same idea, it can be translated, depending on the context, as the word since. And so, if it makes sense logically, in this sense, I think it does make sense logically, to say, Lord, since it is you, permit me or give me the power to walk on top of the water like you're doing. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Think of this. In, in chapter 2, Jesus had given His disciples authority to do what? To do all sorts of miracles. To heal the sick. To do things that they had never gone to school for. That they could do on their own. These were things that Jesus was empowering them to do. He had given them authority to do. So when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, he thinks, probably I would. This is really cool. <laughs> I want to do that. Jesus, since it's you, can I do that? Can I walk on the water to come to where you are? And Jesus correcting. Jesus doesn't say, are you crazy? You're Peter. You can't do that. No. He says, come on. And so, as much flack as Peter gets, applauded because he's the only disciple that gets out of the boat. None of the other disciples even apparently came the thought. But Peter gets out of the boat to go to where Jesus is. Jesus, of course, is the one that Peter is looking at. He's looking at Jesus, and so he gets out of the boat to go to where Jesus is. Peter's faith is not just something that happens, but it is something that he believes in. He believes in Jesus because of who Jesus is and because of his experience personally with Jesus. He knows that Jesus has come through before. He just saw it with the feeding of the 5,000. He's seen it with countless other miracles, so he believes that what Jesus is enabling him to do, he's done before he can do it again. Faith has a personal connection to us. It is not just a mental ascent where there's just information that says, okay, got it. I've checked that box. I know that about Jesus. I know that Jesus got it. No, it is something that is personal in the sense that it requires you to take action not stay in the boat and have faith. You must take action. And so my faith that says, I believe you, Jesus, I believe that you do this, it requires me and it empowers me to take a step out of the boat towards Jesus. That's what faith is. It's easy to sit in the back of the boat and say, what is this guy's problem? Is he stupid? What is he doing? That's not faith. Faith will falter, it can falter, it flounders, we know that, but it began. 
and it got Peter out of the boat to go to Jesus. So Peter got a lot of flack, rightfully so, but in this instance, he's the only one that took the step of faith to go towards Jesus. Now, what is interesting about this is, is that as we look at this account, we really should be reminded that again, this is not about Peter. In fact, in Mark's account and in John's account of this, Peter's not even mentioned. Now, Matthew loves to mention Peter. <laughs> I don't know if he's trying to highlight some of the shortcomings of Peter, but he loves to mention about all the stuff about Peter. And so, but Mark's gospel and John's gospel and their retelling of this story, they don't even mention Peter. But they do mention Jesus walking on the water. Which is a reminder, again, this is about this. But notice what happens next. Before Peter got too far, Peter, it says, saw the wind. Not the water, by the way. He saw the wind, and he was afraid. Now, I immediately ask when I'm reading this, how do you see the wind? <laughs> you know, the, I mean... You don't really see the wind, but you obviously see the effects of the wind. You, if you doubt that, you guys who live just on the other side of the breeze trying to get to Pensacola, you see the effects of the wind. I mean, the effects of the wind are everywhere in our nation with all the hurricanes and everything that's going on in our world. You can see the wind in a sense. And so Peter is seeing whatever that looks like he is seeing the effects of the wind. But how did he see the wind if he took off to go towards Jesus? Well, it's logical that he might not be looking at Jesus any longer. In fact, he is rebuked by Jesus in this passage, and it says, Oh, you of little faith. He said, did you doubt? Now, the word doubt here is... Greek word, it's distazo, and it suggests the idea of trying to go in two different directions at one time. It also gives the idea of serving two different masters simultaneously. By the way, that's where doubt creeps in. That's where doubt and our confidence in who Jesus is begins to slip. Peter sees as one commentator says, because he no longer sees Jesus. His little faith is trust that falters out of fear. Fear is fatal to faith. It is because this feeling of uneasiness, it shakes our confidence that we have in Jesus. We all have it, don't we? We all fear something. And that's okay God has given us fear, and it can be used in a healthy way. But when the fear becomes crippling, or it becomes paralyzing, and it prevents us from taking the step that we need to take in order to get out of the boat, or in order to complete the journey towards Jesus and where He wants us to go, then it is very defeating. But we must understand that when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we will see other stuff, other, other things that cause problems. And so Peter is shaking. He is very fearful all of a sudden. And he begins 
to sink. He knows Jesus is powerful enough, but all of a sudden he looks at the wind. It is amazing that oftentimes when we know that we don't have the power to do something, we ask Jesus to help us with that. Have you ever been there? You ask Jesus to help you with something, and you ask Him to help you and enable you to do something that you've never done before. You don't know how it's going to get accomplished. And He comes through, and He does it, and then about three steps in, you say, thank you Jesus, praise the Lord. Now all of a sudden, Jason Grizzard is doing this. Man, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty good. It's going pretty well. And then all of a sudden, circumstances come up. Wait, there's wind here. Wait, things are coming apart. Oh my goodness, how am I going to keep this together? Oh wait, I wasn't the one that was doing this to begin with. But we forget, don't we? We forget because of pride. Pride sets in and it, it will deceive us into thinking that we are the ones that enable ourselves to do it to begin with. And we didn't. And we began to sink. But Peter is to be applauded. He doesn't sink fully. It says he begins to sink. And so Peter cries out and he says, Lord, save me. This term Lord is undoubtedly a word. It connects again to that idea of Yahweh, one who has all authority. We don't know Peter had this in mind, but we know that he knows that God is the one that has full authority to keep him up and to pull him up from sinking. And so he is asking for deliverance. He is asking for Jesus to come through for him. And Jesus does not hesitate. He catches Peter, keeps him from falling further. And he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? If you're beginning to sink, don't wait till you sink fully. Some of you have come in and you have burdens that are just crushing you down. You've lost your sight of who Jesus is. You've lost your sight of what is good and powerful in Jesus and all of the weighing downs of life just crept in and they've crippled and crushed you. Don't wait, but beginning to sink, cry out and say, Lord, save me. Because He he will not wait till you've got it all together. You say, this needs saving in my life. This needs rescuing. This needs deliverance. Don't wait till you have the answers. Cry out now, Lord, save me. Deliver me from this. He will do it no matter what you are facing, no matter what the challenges are. The myth that goes around often quoted, it's probably the most often misquoted verse that does not exist. It's called, the Lord helps those who help themselves. But that's not true. The Lord helps those that need help and actually ask for help that they can't do it themselves. Hebrews 5.16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
we must cry out to Him as Peter did. Verse 32, it says, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, at the end of the story, they all get the benefit of Peter's faith and of his faltering faith. Because they see how Jesus rescued Peter. They would never have seen that had Peter stayed in the boat. And so now they are able to step and say, wow, you truly are the Son of God. Not only did you walk water, not only did you speak encouragement and authority into our lives in the midst of all of this, but you enabled Peter to walk on the water. And then when his faith faltered, you rescued him. Oftentimes we think, well, if I step out, I'm going to fail. And? And? The only benefit to you failing is that Christ will be exalted in that. Don't stay in the boat. Take the step of faith. Put your faith in Jesus because He is the one that's doing the work. He is the one that is empowering you to do all of that. So, that's what the story is about. Jesus, He's coming to His followers on top of the water to on the winds to take charge, to offer them His presence, to permit them to become like Him and to offer and rescue when they fail. This story is not unlike our own. Our story is not about us. We might be in difficulty, but He is able to do immeasurably more than anything that we could ever ask or imagine. You into the followers that will eventually change the world. But you've got to be comfortable with storms. He cannot change you unless you are comfortable with the process of storms. Fred has said this before, this is not anything new, but you are either headed into a storm, or in a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. There's only three possibilities. And so in this story, we obviously have three of those at play. We see that they are headed into a storm, they are in a storm, they come out of a storm. All of those things are true. So in my wrap-up, before I get to that, I want to say this. In this storm that you are in right now, is this a storm of your own making? Or is this a storm as a result of your obedience to Christ? We know in Scripture there are a lot of storms. Do I need to go into the story of Jonah? that are not storms that are good ideas. <laughs> they are storms that are used in a disciplinary sense. So that's an honest question. Is the storm in a result of your own doing, or is it something that God is just putting you in? I don't know the circumstances. You'll have to answer that prayerfully. So takeaways that I have from this. First of all, we see in the story Jesus is praying for you. Not often talked about. Jesus is praying for you. In Hebrews 7, 3-25, it says, Because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, because He always lives to intercede 
for them. There is something comforting about knowing that Jesus is praying for me. The question is, do you believe that Jesus' prayers are answered? Spoiler alert, they are. They are always answered. And to know that He is praying for you in the midst of whatever you are going through is amazing. If I say I'm praying for you, that may not make a whole lot of difference. But to know that He is interceding forever for us before the Father is such an encouragement. The second thing is, Jesus is working His plan for you and through you. One real quick in verses 34 to 36, and I want to say this real quick, quick. It says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. Uh, anyway, it basically landed at Gennesaret. And so Gennesaret lay on the western shore of Galilee. It was south of Capernaum for which the disciples had originally headed out, according to John 6. And Mark says that they started out for Bethsaida as well, which was pretty much a stop on the way. It's kind of like the priesters become the Gospels apparently, and so they were stopping on the way there, but they landed in Gennesaret. How does that happen? It happens because the storm blew them off course. They did not end where they originally intended to end. What about you? Ended up where you thought you would be? Probably not. But that's not always a bad thing, is it? And so in life, sometimes storms have a way of blowing us off course, but those create opportunities for God to work. I know in my own life, some of the greatest appointments have laid the groundwork for God's greatest accomplishments. And so you might be disappointed in where you've ended up because of a storm that's come and blown you off course or what has happened, but God is at work. And God is sovereign and He has all authority and He's good and He can be trusted. So stay in the game. Don't lose heart. He is working a purpose and a plan that you may not know, but one day you'll know. The third thing is Jesus is with us in the middle of the storm. We've already talked about that. Presence cannot be overstated. This is the part of Jesus that offers grace and mercy and help in the time of need. Don't lose heart because He is there with you. The fourth thing, Jesus has all authority over the storm. He's more than just a friend. He is Lord over the storm. He has authority to actually get stuff done, to change things. So it's not somebody that you can, you can tell your troubles to like a divine psychiatrist. He is someone who actually has the ability to change it, to do something about it. He has all authority. But as we know, storms don't always improve situation, do they? Look in Texas, what's going on out there? It's a crazy time. Storms often leave devastation. There's this quote that came out at the very beginning of the global pandemic. It was a quote I thought that came out way too early, but it says that basically every storm eventually runs out of water. And that is true. <laughs> eventually. Eventually it will. But in the meantime, we must keep our eyes more than ever on the authority of Jesus. If we lose everything tonight, where will our faith be? He is in control. He is the authority over our 
lives. So that is a challenge to us to ask ourselves, what is God saying to me right now? Here's the fifth thing. Jesus will work with you through your failures and doubts and missteps. You may be failing, you may falter in your faith, but His disciples so consumed by the storm they did not recognize Jesus. Peter, of course, takes his eyes off of Jesus, but he's still given the opportunity to fail. And Jesus, he says, oh, you of little faith. He says it in such a gracious way. Calm Peter down and to let him know that that's okay. I've got this. And here's the final thing. Jesus ultimately wants people to know who he is. Jesus ultimately wants people to know who he is. Why? Because he is the only one who can make a difference in his life. If someone is, if I make a difference in someone's life, it's because Jesus is me to do that. He wants, to, he wants people to know who He is. The disciples exclaim that this is truly the Son of God. It is critical for the disciples to know who He is because it is through the means of the disciples all nations will come to know who Jesus is dropping breadcrumbs along the way so that at the end of his life, they will be able to piece together a mosaic of his glory. He does that in our life, doesn't he? He drops breadcrumbs of his goodness all along the way so that we will be able to see a mosaic of who he is. That we can step back after the storm is done and say, I didn't see it always in the middle of it, but now I know that he really is the Son of God. So I want to encourage you this morning, it's difficult going through storms or being storms. But on the other side of it, you can look back and you can see His glory and you can hand at work. He does have a purpose in mind. My conclusion this morning is, if you do not know Jesus, now is the time to cry out to Him where you are, Lord, save me. If you don't know Him, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but maybe you've heard it this morning and you think, I'd really know that Jesus. You don't need to talk to anybody. You, don't need to say, you just need to cry out to Him right where you are and say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And if you've done that, come and talk with one of us. Tell us what you've done. Let us help you with the next step of your faith. But if you're here and you're a believer, as I suspect most of you are, there might be a storm that you're either going into, that you're in, or that you're coming out of. Jesus has all authority. And He is the Son of God, and He is sufficient for all the challenges of your life. And so ask yourself, what does God want from me in this storm? He is able to be trusted. He is good, and He is great. And I hope that you'll trust Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for this story. We thank You for who Jesus is. And Father, we pray that You would encourage those who are here today with the reality of who You are. And I pray that they would cry out to You and ask You to save them, Lord, if they need saving. Some of us are believers, Father, and we still need to cry out for God to save us, to deliver us from whatever it is that we're in, we're doubting, we're faltering. So Lord, we just pray that You'd give us the strength and the courage to overcome fear and to do that. 
for your honor and for your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.